Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Caged In Presents Coppola Connections, brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and me, Petros Patsilovus. On this podcast, I shake every branch of the Coppola family tree to find out, are they the greatest film family of all time? The way I intend to do that is by watching every single film in their collective filmographies. On this week's episode, I had the pleasure of being joined by not only a great podcaster, not only like uh, genuinely, uh, Daryl Bear is the host of two of my absolute favourite podcasts. We'll get into what they are when I introduce Daryl in a second. But before we get into it, obviously we will be talking about this film in spoilerific detail. So if you haven't seen it, Pause the podcast right now and go watch it. So I assume you're back. You've either watched it or you've already seen it or you don't really care too much for spoilers. Um, Unfortunately, this episode, there is no Patreon exclusive content. It's been hot, guys. I've been sweating out in the shed. And yeah, these these episodes go on as they <laughs> enough as they are. I always feel bad about asking people to stay a little bit longer. But if you do want to support on Patreon, you can head on over there and it's patreon.com forward slash caged in pod. So all that's left to do is assemble your team, jump aboard the Pelham 123 and let's make some Coppola connections. Nineteen seventy four was a big year for the Coppola family. Francis released not one but two films, with The Godfather Part Two, which features his younger sister Talia Shire, and The Conversation, the latter scored by today's Coppola connection, David Shire, who also scored Killer Bee's Sidekicks that year, as well as the focus of today's chat, taking off the Pelham One Two Three. To investigate what's going on on the subway, I need my own Lieutenant Rico. To my Lieutenant Garber. I have the pleasure of being joined by one third of Sudden Double Deep and one half of his Paul Dano OK. Daryl Bear, how are you, Daryl? Hello, mate. I'm good, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Um, so, yeah, before we get into talking about the Coppola family, tell us a little bit about the podcast you do. You've obviously, since we last sure. talked, you've got a new one. I know, right? Yeah, it's funny how that happens. So yeah, like first things first, um, Sudden Double Deep is the Triple Bill title podcast. On our show, we watch three films linked by a word in the title. We've been knocking around for about five years now. Five years. (laughs) That's mad. Um, So recently, I don't know when this is coming out, but recently we recorded and we released our Earth Triple Bill. So I picked the word Earth out of the tin. And so we we covered the 1959 Journey to the Center of the Earth, starring James Mason, (laughs) um, The Man Who Fell to Earth, with David Bowie, and then also the the most recent Ben Wheatley joints in the earth. And then also on top of that, we've got mine and Matt's uh, other, other podcast now, Is Paul Dano Okay? Where we go through Paul Dano's entire filmography and just, we you know, we talk about the films and there's, it's mad because only about two thirds of his films have ever got a UK release as well. So there's some real hidden gems and hidden turds in there as well. And uh, <laughs> and we try and ascertain: is he is he all right? Is he okay? Is he doing okay? You made the smart decision by doing like curated seasons and kind of like <laughs> mixing some of the shit with some of the gold. 
because yeah. one of the mistakes I made doing the uh, Nick Cage stuff in chronological order is it's like <laughs> front, like, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like when I'm still finding my feet as a podcaster, it's like, hey, I'm tackling the quote unquote golden years of Cage, that mid 90s stretch. And then, mm. like, <laughs> when I found my feet, and then, like, when it's established, it's like, hey, come listen to the to the 2000s, like, straight to VOD stuff where he needs loads of money. And then, like, it's like, oh, great. Now, now nobody will want to, like, do you know what I mean? Come listen to films yeah, about films you've never heard of. It's an odd one, isn't it? And, um, like, we, I mean, we were absolutely influenced and inspired to do what we're doing because of you, oh, you know, because right. of this pod, you know, because of your, your previous iteration of this podcast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, absolutely. It came about just as we were, we were kind of having a joke about Paul Dano. I think we're discussing, um, where the world things are on our wild triple bill. I want to say back in the day. Oh, that's the thought police. <laughs> I've got the windows open. It's middle of summer. It's frigging hot. Um, but yeah, no, um, and so, so we were like kind of joking about like how pretty much he gets beaten up in, it seemingly gets beaten up or heartbroken or screwed up in every single film he's in. And yeah, Matt was the genius who decided that let's not go chronological. Let's, 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 let's mix this up a bit. So we've ended up in, uh, in the two seasons so far with, with some really interesting early stuff some really shocking early stuff as well <laughs> but then some some real heavy hitters already so that's been it's been a nice kind of nice nice run of things so far perfect well let's talk about the Coppola family and as I always start these off I always like to ask when did you first become aware of the Coppola family and what I mean by that is like that they were this spider's web entity of a film family mm, okay so Probably around the time I bought all three of the Godfather films on VHS from my local Woolworths. <laughs> uh, and it was, I think it was like £5 uh, a film, but it was like three for £10. So I got the Godfather trilogy on VHS for a tenner. And it was just even in that, you know, and get, kind of getting fascinated, adoring those films. Um, just going, oh God, that's his sister, and oh God, that's the the father is the composer, and that it was just this. This becomes this cascade suddenly of like all of these, you know, filmmakers in their own right that that happen to be in those films. What are your thoughts on like the whole like nepotism angle that a lot of people level at, at the Coppolas? Like, do you do you see it as like this weird insidious thing, or are you kind of like it's just like a loving like? Oh, no, I think. I, I think that sort of thing, sir. Yeah, man. I don't know. I I I struggle with with that. It's like nepotism is one of those things where, like, I don't know. Maybe it's a classism thing. But if I'm seeing some tough prick in the UK, some 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 actor who's who's a handsome streak of you know whatever, mm-hmm. but there's not much to him, and it's like, oh, it's the it's the grandson of I don't know. Like Vanessa Redgrave or some bollocks. Like then, then I get a bit funny with it, and I think that's probably my my working classness shining through <laughs> yeah, the chip yeah. on my shoulder. But with regards to like with with film and that, it's I think it's really hard. Like if you, I mean, if you've got like you know family businesses, like whether it's you know my 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 mum's side of the family, they had a coach works. They they basically had uh, coaches. And so it meant that my my grandfather and his sons and you know some of my my cousins all worked for this coach firm. You wouldn't look at that and go fucking nepotism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just it's a family business uh, to kind of you know godfather it a little bit. But it, it kind of it's the same way I think with with certain 
with certain actors as well. It's like, like if that's all you've known and you've been growing up on film sets and that's what you're really comfortable with, then, you know, I, I don't know if they, if they get those roles and they're super not talented. Yeah. I think that's when it, cause that's when, that's it comes when a it's the problem, like, yeah. you know, uh, and they still, you know, it's that whole white men fail upwards thing. Like if it's still, um, you know, that, that if it's, if we're still getting the likes of, um, Oh, what's the guy's name? Uh, John Landis's son. Oh, Max. You know, yeah. who, in fairness, wrote, you know, Chronicles great, I think. Mm-hmm. But then everything post-Chronicle has been a massive pile of shit. And also, he's a <laughs> terrible human being as well. Um, you know, in those instances, you're just like, oh, no, man, it's no good. But, like, you know, sometimes, you know, I kind of get it. And, you know, you got to feel for Sophia Coppola as well in The Godfather 3, mm-hmm. being one of the main reasons why that film gets such shtick. And it's just like, well... She kind of had to come in at a pinch at the last minute to to save the you know yeah yeah, yeah. so can't can't really blame her and it's that thing like I think to your point of if people are shit that it it feels a lot more icky when like mm. they kind of get these roles undeservedly whereas like Sophia Coppola I think has proved in her own right that she deserves to be like where she is oh, do gotcha. you know what I mean like because mm-hmm out of the gate like the virgin suicides is incredible yeah. yeah and then like what oscar winner for best original screenplay with uh, lost in translation so it's it's not a case of like yeah it's not that case i, I guess there probably is somewhere down the line like people mm. who aren't so des- and you can probably i don't know you might be able to figure that out from who hasn't been covered on this podcast so far uh they're probably just like they got a job Definitely because of uh, who their name oh, is. Oh, the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so what would have been the first David Shire film that, uh, yeah, that was scored by David Shire that you would have seen? That's a really interesting one, but probably uh, most people that are my age, it will have been uh, Return to Oz. Yes. Which... So, yeah, that was, <laughs> it's got to have been. Yeah, yeah. That film, that's that, that typical kind of 80s thing where it's like, oh, it's for kids. It's totally going to fuck you up. <laughs> And uh, and yeah, I I loved it as a as a kid because you know I was into that sort of thing. But that then Short Circuit was the year after. <laughs> so and then like yeah, Vice Versa, that terrible. Um, it's, it's just Freaky Friday, but with with um, Judge Reinhold. That's all it is. Um, so yeah, they're, they're probably the, the first ones I saw were the kids ones. Uh, you know. What? Uh, and then like obviously like one of my faves would have come much 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 later, and that's that Zodiac. Yeah. Because that's outstanding. Which is really fascinating because I think David Fincher was just temp scoring with David Shire's music because it's kind of got, especially his 70s stuff that mm-hmm. we'll talk about a lot more when, we, when it comes to taking the pill in one, two, three. But it's got this bombast and use of like almost like discordant sounds. And yeah, like I think it just got to a point someone's like, why don't you ask David Shire? <laughs> to do the music instead of like i love that yeah i think i think there was going to be just like actual doing a tarantino and then just lifting stuff wholesale from david shire films and then he wrote that kind of there's a thing to do with like the actual zodiac signs and every piece of music on that score like relates to it and that's where we get like these i think that again is quite like discordant and a bit out there and stuff like that but like Mm. yeah david shire seems to really know what he's doing and back to what you talk about um return to oz like 
that that's directed by another like Francis Ford Coppola alumni as well, Walter Murch, like the kind of right, the yeah. guy who's credited for inventing sound design because he was like a a secondary editor on the conversation and couldn't get like because there was already another editor and he'd done so much with the, like the sound of that film they just invented the term sound editor for that or sound design fantastic for that film yeah 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 um jesus <laughs> so let's talk about taking off the pelham one two three 1.23 p.m. A crowded subway train starts its run from Pelham Station in the Bronx. 1.45 p.m. Four desperate, heavily armed men seize control of the train. Open the door or I'll blow your head off. Taking 17 people as hostages. Your attention, please. Now then, you'll all remain seated. Anybody who tries to rise is going to get shot. <laughs> I do hope I have made myself understood. 2.13 p.m. The city of New York is given one hour to come up with a million-dollar ransom. You're out of your skull. No all units stand by on a double. What's up, Z? A train's been hijacked. Millions have read it. Now you can live it. The taking of Pelham. One, two, three. There is no way you can get away with this. You are underground in a tunnel. At precisely 3.13, we are going to begin executing the hostages. <laughs> Nothing will happen as long as you obey my orders. New York City is held powerless in the grip of four ruthless men. From the mayor's office. Don't tell me I don't want to know. To police headquarters. I've got about 50 men inside the tunnel, all wearing vests and armed with machine and submachine guns. We could fight the third world war down there. To the nerve center of the world's busiest subway system. My only priority is saving the lives of these passengers. Maybe an hour isn't enough time. An hour is plenty of time. We agree to pay the ransom. Repeat, we agreed to pay you the money. Now turn your clock off. The money has to be counted, stacked, tied, transported uptown. It just isn't physically possible. You'd be surprised what's physically possible. Column one, two, three's in motion. There's no How long does it take to get all that money together anyway? Just not gonna make it. We'll never make it. The passengers are dead ducks. What the hell do they expect for that lousy 35 cents to live forever? Walter Matthau, Robert Shaw. The most spectacular hijack in history. The taking of Pelham. One, two, three. When would mm. you have first seen taking of the Pelham one, two, three? And what was your first reaction? Ooh. There's a question. So I would have probably caught this on telly. Oh, would I have though? Would I have sat through adverts to watch this? I don't know. It was either late night on like a Channel Four type thing, mm -hmm. or or back in the early days of DVD. DVD. I think I probably picked up what is essentially the the vanilla release of this. Yeah, the only one that's available now. Right? Yeah, the yeah. <laughs> I cannot believe the disrespect this film has had in terms of releases over the years. So, so it's, I'm, I'm not sure if yours is the same as mine, but like watching it on like a widescreen TV, it is in widescreen, but then it's still in like boxed in. So, it was like, oh shit, yeah. So, I might as uh -huh. well have just watched it on a laptop because it's like, uh huh. It was like the <laughs> the screen is halved and then just like, yeah, like 
in widescreen. So I was like across the room going like, what the fuck? Like this need, this needs like a kind of premium Blu-ray release. Cause I imagine there's like, I don't know. The, yeah, there's there's plenty of nerds out there who'd write essays on it, and I'm sure there's plenty of like, of course, great stories from the set. Because this is like beautifully like, don't it feels very of the time and of the place of New York. It's yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's definitely it feels like a especially considering that the year after this, you know, there's lots of talk in this about you know nobody likes the mayor and it's the second year and everything's fucked and and they've got no money in the city and that was literally what was happening in New York in seventy four and seventy five seventy five um, the the city of New York very nearly went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, there was like no money there at all. And there's just like you can go f- online and find some great articles about this. There's, a, there's one in the New York from the New York Yorker. It's actually worth a read. Um, so yeah, this was a city that was like had no money, and you hear all these these, these talks that the um, you know, all these stories that the film crew wanted to film with in the, in the underground, and they were just like, well sure but you can't have any graffiti you can't show it how it actually is <laughs> because it was so horrible at the time it was so gross and uh, and yeah the fact that we what we get here is is very different to that it still feels like the attitudes very much feel like a time capsule mm-hmm. of the era um in terms of uh, there's lot there's lots of fuck bombs in this movie and lots <laughs> of people that are just like really uh, aggravated and upset and miserable and yeah, yeah, yeah. intense and anxious. There's, there's um, a, which definitely speaks to the era for sure. There's like a big vein of Petrus. You've frozen on me again, buddy. Oh, uh, can you hear me? Oh, you mo- now you're moving. Now you, yes, yes. I don't know what happened there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your, you like your, willed it to existence. Your picture froze, and but I could still hear you perfectly. So it's just like <laughs> fingers crossed. There, <laughs> There's a massive vein. I'm so of... sorry. This is going to be a fucker for you to edit. It's all right, man. I've, I I relish. <laughs> I, 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 I'm a few weeks ahead, so this will be a nice little challenge for me. Oh, um, Jesus. There's a like massive vein of cynicism that runs throughout this film, and I like mm. I love it. Like you kind of the like some of like the tertiary side characters yeah. in this. Whether it's um, I think it's Carell, the like. Um, the train operator, the guy who first speaks to the hijackers and like all his concern throughout the whole film is like, Hey, what am I going to get? What am I going to get the trains back on? Like on the tracks. Yeah, like, yeah. What, what the fuck are you doing? Like, I just want to do yeah. this. And we get the, um, the guy who like wants to go down and check on it. I think it's, um, what's his name? Like do uh, Dolites or something like that. And he's like, he again is like, just like what? What the hell's going? He's like watching the, yeah. the bleeps on old timers. They're just used <laughs> yeah. to everything working a certain way, and their whole lives are you know. They, in another world, they'd have all been like watchmakers or something, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, I love that, and I love that that that, that kind of uh, aggressive Aggie nature is just it just permeates through this. It doesn't paint anybody in in like a heroic light, really. I mean, even Garber himself is. He's uh, I mean, he's Walter Matthau. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's seeing him with a gun at the end is a bit like this, like dissonance <laughs> in your head. I nearly had some sort of like psycho- psychotic fugue state for a minute. It goes like seeing Walter Matthau with a gun. It's like, what? What's this? It's like Tom Selleck without a mustache. So so odd. I've got a confession to make. This was a first time watch for me, and ah. my second ever Walter Matthau film. Uh, the first being 1993's. Dennis the Menace. 
So this was <laughs> this was a breath of fresh air for me in like holy shit what this man can do and obviously a bit confusing because i'm like oh he's, he's crotchety mr wilson he's not yeah. like and then like in the and then uh, obviously having a look like he's got this great thing in the 70s where he's like seems to be just like bouncing between like um comedies whether it's like the odd couple and then like more serious stuff with this and i think this film has this great element of comedy to it and like utilizes people like Walter Matthau or even like Jerry Stiller who have this like mm. human, uh, yeah, like humorous quality to them that makes this film feel real and like human and that like, I don't know, like, it, yeah, it just feels like real people going through yeah. this, this, this event. So it's not like beautiful people, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. like, um, <laughs> Uh, you know what? That's the funny. The funny thing is, is besides, I think Denzel in the in the two thousand nine remake. Uh, you know, it's not that film's not really full of beautiful people either. I think yeah. they get that uh, kind of right there. But you could totally see another version of this where it's you know it's all of the the better looking actors of the day. You're going to have a Robert Redford in here somewhere or something. Yeah. You know. Um, but yeah, I, I dig that. It adds to the verisimilitude of the thing. And Walter Matt, I've recently caught Walter Matt out in. Um, a film called A New Leaf mm -hmm. from 71, which is fantastic. It's uh, an Elaine May film and it's, and she, she also, she co-stars in it. And that's, that's, that's a thorough recommend from me. But yeah, I'm, I'm a bit like some of the bigger Walter Matthau films, like some of his Jack Lemmon stuff, besides the grumpy and grumpier old men films, which I have seen, I haven't seen any of the heavy hitters, um, <laughs> which is, you know, it's pretty shit on my part. I've got to say, got to, got to get on them. Um, but this is a year before Robert Shaw was in Jaws. Yeah. That, and that's, he's so menacing, isn't he? There's a lot of cast members in this that are like people who... So, yeah, let's kind of like have a little look through the cast and see who we've got here. So, obviously, we have... We've mentioned Walter Matthau as Garber, Robert Shaw as Blue, Martin Balsam as Mr. Green, Hector Alizande, who... I'm going to throw this one out there, has got a Coppola connection, uh, has been covered on the podcast as... Uh, he is in the Princess Diaries as like the chauffeur to the yes. <laughs> yeah, so like, uh, yeah. and then uh, Earl Hindman, who most people may recognise the top of his head, as he is <laughs> Mister Wilson in uh, Home Improvement, like the neighbour next door. Mm. And then yeah, uh, kind of as we've mentioned before, we've got Jerry Stiller as um, Rico Patron, and then. Lee Wallace as the mayor, Tom Petty, who is, yeah, Kaz uh, Doll White, who I mentioned earlier, the kind of crotchy old guy, Dick O'Neill. It, it, let's be honest, it's a it's a, it's an absolute sausage fest of a film. Like, oh, totally. This is a <laughs> this feels very much like a like a boy's own movie, you yeah. know, like a yeah, this is like a man, like, like a man's movie. And I think it's probably you know this would have been one of, the, the the book itself is is one of those like airport novel like page turners it's like your dan brown of your era type thing but yeah it's like no nonsense you know the guy who wrote it was a was a massive fucking train spotter he's just a big he was a big old nerd who was like i could yeah, i could weave this into a into a into a uh into a into a novel and so like yeah like the the novel itself um came out you know did incredibly well just before this as well and then so the film rights were, were bought up for uh, snapped up for an insane amount of money for the time 
I read something like eight hundred thousand dollars or something wow. ridiculous. Um, but but yeah, from from the back of that, you know, there's 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 very few things that kind of like they either omitted. Like the, the, he goes into a lot more detail on how they were going to pull off the heist in the in the book mm-hmm. and the 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 transport authority. Like you cannot mention all this shit in your film because we will have people doing this <laughs> so they had to just take te- several steps away from it in order to, to make it so it wasn't so believable well i think there's like a there's a mixed narrative there's like kind of like um different narratives in the book as well where it kind of takes the, right different yeah the the the, the different like uh men on the train like the robbers on the train mm-hmm. and so like because you kind of get glimpses that it it's like it doesn't go too much into how they know each other or anything like that. Cause mm. you could imagine, I'm not sure if the book does it, but like a kind of like, um, almost like who done it. Like, do you know what I mean? Of like, who are like, who's against who? Like we obviously get yeah. that in this film. Like, cause it, but it seems to be in like the last third when you start to realize that they're kind of all against each other almost. Yeah. You know I mean, it's like every man for himself and like, but, yeah, and we, we only really get what the backstory on Robert Shaw's character mm. and uh Martin Balsam's like Mr. Green just and again that's that seems to be there because it, it The two biggest actors that there is. Well. The plot, right? Is that, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. You, well yeah, kind of um Robert Robert Shaw's just kind of I don't know. Yeah, let's talk about Robert Shaw. What like what do you make of this performance? I I dig it. I I love the fact that it's uh, he's he's always one of these actors that can do like understated well. Whether it's as Red Grant in uh, From Russia with Love, mm-hmm. or if it's you know if it's Wint in um, in Jaws, you know it's he does understated incredibly well. And it's like a menace. Like he's like he's he's like uh, simmering almost. Mm-hmm. You know, he's still kind of on the boil a little, but yeah, he um, he's he's great in this. He really is. Um, I, I I like the fact that we 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 kind of get to see that he's 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 like a shark. <laughs> you know, uh, whereas somebody like you know your your Hector Elizondo's uh, Mr. Gray is he's he's a psychopath. He's yeah. he's, he's a complete psycho, and that you get these very very different. You know, like you. You can tell, like they, they they all met in the joint, right? They all met in, mm-hmm. in prison. So there's there's that kind of sense of like, right? You you set up this job with with the people that you have around you at the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. instead of like getting out and then going right now. That's I'm going to yeah, yeah, put yeah. a crew together, which would have probably been the more sensible way of doing it. Um, I love the the use of the colours as well, Mr. Blue, Mr. Green, Mr. Grey, Mr. Brown. Yep. I, yeah. I, I, I wonder who's made that extremely popular. <laughs> this is it. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah, totally. Um, I was just looking at thinking about this now. That's eye colours, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that will that would have been possibly what but yeah, that's cool. I dig that. Um yeah, I love the fact that the mayor is uh, a really weak willed twat. I think that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love the fact we've got Julius Harris in this as well. Like that's two Bond villains we've got in this film. So obviously Robert Shaw was in From Russia of Love. Julius Harris was uh Teehee in um was he Teehee? Yeah he was Teehee in um Live and Let Die. Mm-hmm. The guy with the the claw hand thing. I'm not a big I'm not a big Bond uh, dude. Man. Yeah yeah it's, it's a Roger Moore one as well so it's shit so don't worry about it. Um but yeah so that's there's two two Bond villains in this which uh which I kind of which I kind of dig. But again it's it's a man's man film of the era you're going to have a lot of these you know 
men's men. You know, they yeah. don't have to be super attractive, chisel-jawed uh, dudes. They, they can just be guys that are off doing their, doing their jobs. I wanted to talk about how this film, like, they set up the villains of the piece. I think it's really interesting in that it's no exposition or anything like that. You kind of, like, I think Hector Elizondo's character, Mr. Grey, is introduced to the film perfectly with, like, mm this kind of lick of the lips at this woman and you immediately go, he's a fucking piece of shit, isn't he? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's, like, that's creepy, yeah. And the, yeah. the way the film, like, gets you into it by, like, we get that shot of the conductor talking to, like, um, the guy who's, like, training him and stuff like mm. that. And it, it doesn't spoon-feed you who anyone is or anything like that. It's kind of like you just kind of feel like a bit of a fly on the wall, like the kind of the way the yeah. camera like pans round to them and then carries on down the train and then into the carriage itself as uh, Mr. Grey gets on. And then when like Robert Shaw's character turns up as the, the fourth man on the train, we get this like great scene as like the, the pressure starts to mount. Hey, how am I supposed to see what you... Holy God, what do you want? I'm taking your train. You're taking my train? Turn around, I got something to show you. What's going on? What Shut up. I won't tell you again. Open the door or I'll blow your head off. What do you make of this, like, the way it, the film is set up and, like, yeah, uh, Joseph Sargent's kind of direction to kind of build the tension to the inevitable hijacking of the train? I, I, think, it's, I think it's amazing how it works so well, like, how, how, the music, how the music works so well with it. Like, what we've got with what David Shire is doing here is, again, those lovely kind of bass tones you know, and we've got brass in there that are just, and it's these this short stabs that, you know, it's not quite a heartbeat, but it has it, yeah. you, you, this sense of impending doom, like shit's about to go <laughs> yeah. down, especially with the, off the top end of that, you've got like little snare stabs mm -hmm. as well, which kind of speaks to kind of military and military precision, mm -hmm. which is what I think more, most about, say, you know, Mr. Blue as well, because he's a mercenary um kudos for them to decide that he was a, a british mercenary who was working in africa and they didn't give him a south african accent because <laughs> that would have been the lazy thing that you, t you tend to get a lot more of uh, these days um but i i love that you know we, we do you, you start off with this um again just the yeah you're right but the fly on the wall thing of like the the training for this guy yeah. who announces the wrong friggin' station just before. <laughs> and then at the next station, the guy goes, well, you're doing all right. See you later. And you're like, no, he just fucked up. Like, dude, what are you leaving him there? Like, we, Well, it gives, well, it, it gives a perfect like summation of what seventies New York was like. He, <laughs> he says to him at one point, he says like, he apologizes over the tunnel and he's like, Hey man, don't apologize. Like you never know who's going like, to, yeah. so somebody will like, somebody will hit you for that shit. And it's like, you get that sense of like, this is an unforgiving place to live. Like yeah. this is everybody's like out for themselves, out for each other, and like they, they yeah, it's, it's no nonsense, and that's what I kind mm. of I kind of like love about 
well, 70s cinema and especially this film i'm yes 70s cinema is is definitely it's probably my favorite decade for that reason but i i do have this i have this real weakness for this like a 20 year period of uh films from the 70s and 80s 70s and into 80s new york so your films of your like your William Lustigs and you know or your your Frank Hennen Lotters, so things like your Maniac Cop or your Basket Case yeah. or Maniac or like you know uh, Ms. Forty Five, which I caught recently, the Abel Ferrara film. Like it's a very specific type of New York that that only existed yeah, yeah. for 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 a twenty year period. Uh, until the until Ghostbusters cleaned it up in Ghostbusters too, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 amazing, and I, I can't get enough of it whenever we see it, you know. Um, but yeah, here it's here it's it's just perfect. It reminds me of like at any moment the Warriors could be getting yeah, on yeah, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. this underground, yeah. like totally. It's way out of their it's it's way out of their zone, but still, like you could totally imagine them in this as well. Like it's got Walter Hill vibes all over it. Yeah, definitely. So talking of Walters. Uh, yeah, let's talk about Walter Matthau and his introduction to the film as um, as Garber. Here's a clip of when he first speaks to, I think it's Mr. Blue. Yeah. Hello, Morcho 3. Come in, please. This is Pelham. Identify yourself, please. Oh, this is Lieutenant Zachary Garber of the Transit Police. Identify yourself, please. I'm the man who stole your train. Well, sir, there is no way you can get away with this. You are underground in a tunnel. Why do you concern yourself with that? At precisely 3.13, we are going to begin executing the hostages. Don't you think you'd better get in touch with the mayor and get back to me for my further instructions? Over and out. That son of a bitch has got me backed up all the way to the front. All right, what is this, a circus? Come on, for Christ's sake, let's get back to work. Rico, did you get that? I only get your end of it, but I can piece the rest of it together. How is Walter Matthau um, introduced into this film? Because I, I think that's... That's kind of interesting what's going on at the MTA at that moment. I love the fact that, yeah, he's... And this, this actually speaks to the, um, the, to the remake as well, but, like, he's, uh, he's supposed to be, like, glad-handing and showing around a group of uh, members of it's the Tokyo's underground network. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, he's, uh, he's showing them around, but obviously because of the limited understanding or uh, their perceived limited understanding <laughs> of the english language um he's basically walking around saying any old shit and being quite rude about them mm-hmm. to ev- anybody that's around because obviously everybody everybody that work there seems to be listless and not really giving two shits and it becomes very apparent like when when shit starts to go awry and they that they can all totally understand and speak English. <laughs> and he, he, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. It's like to have such a, like, you know, we've, we've built up all this pressure already in that opening reel. So then suddenly you just let it go just a little bit. You, you ease off on the pressure and this, this humorous moment. Cause you know, those are few and far between as it breaks into the, the start of the, the second act. I, I, lo- I, I love that kind of reveal. Cause when, when the, yeah, Japanese businessman, like, no perfect english especially because it's just come after like what could be perceived as like an out and out racist line where you've got like the train operator kind of going like oh why the hell we got these chinamen in here and it's like yeah and like which obviously like is definitely a sign of the times with a film like this and do your thing of levity as well i think like i personally love there's a there's a moment with uh rico and he calls like the the like one of the guys yeah one of the traffic cops who would have been on the platform and like he's saying to him like 
keep it quiet. Like, like I'm going to tell you something. And we get that great bit of levity where he's like, the train's been hijacked. And then straight away, his reaction is, holy shit. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Oh, man. I, look, we've also got, we're not not really brought up yet, but Martin Balsam in this. And Martin Balsam, you know, from all manner of things, you know, like, I think the first time I would have ever seen him would have been Psycho, but... Obviously, he's in Twelve Angry Men, and like he's he's one of those guys that you look back at a lot of like films that regard widely regarded as classics, uh, and you just go, "Holy fuck, Martin Balsam's in that as well!" Like <laughs> he's he's just one of those guys, and he's he's here, you know, just just you know with with his cold, which apparently was you know it was not part of the it's not in the novel. That, that that character has a cold is something that's you know for the film itself, which which sets up something that, that, like one of the, my favourite uh, closings of any film ever, um, where this cold you know comes back. Um, but he's he's great. He adds so much uh, texture, I think, to what could have otherwise just been uh, another you know another hijacker. I, I will say this: I think uh, Earl Hindman as Mister Brown. He's probably the least, you know, we, I, maybe it's, I don't know if it's the performance or just how he was written. We don't get much of yeah. Mr. Brown. What, um, what is quite interesting about this, obviously, they're all in dislike. Uh, well, all of them bar, um, yeah, bar, bar Shaw's character seem to be in like some level of like prosthetics almost, or like, mm. do you know what I mean? They have like these, do we get that like reveal? near the end where they've kind of got this like plan to bag up all of their clothes turn their jackets inside out and you see them kind of like peeling smart mustaches off and stuff like that mm. and it's like oh they're like because they yeah and they all kind of look relatively the same at that point yeah as well, when they first get on the train and like i remember like at one point i think with the oh Heinemann character i was like I, I'm, I swear there was four guys who got on the train because there's like a good like <laughs> 45 minute chunk of the film where he like doesn't even seem you can't no. you don't see him at all and i'm a bit like that seems a bit bizarre do you know what i mean like mm. and it's yeah his, his character doesn't doesn't seem to have an archetype right so i think it's really interesting we don't we, he doesn't get much characterization and neither does really anybody on that carriage yes Something that, you know, I kind of say that the the Tony Scott remake does go to some lengths to attempt to give us several characters mm-hmm. in that carriage that we can root for as an audience. But this really doesn't. We, we you know, we're, we're treated to any, everybody that works with the uh, with the transport authority, everybody that works with the police. We, we get little bits of texture and dimensionality to them. But. Besides, like the fact that the you know Hector Elizondo's character is being super sleazy to the the woman with the cleavage, we don't really get much of any of them. Really, you got those two bratty kids, but honestly, I don't know how he didn't put a bullet in them when they started to fuck around. <laughs> like Jesus, like seriously, is that a real gun, kid? Do you want to test that, <laughs> fucking idiot? Yeah, good grief. Yeah. Well, like, one of the things that, like, we get on that train carriage, like, with some of the people, because we get that, like, well, it's like a really long joke. Well, like, do you know I mean, for the payoff to come, we get that, like, drunkard who's, like, falling asleep. We get, like, a bottle, <laughs> a bottle of booze, like, and then we have that, like, 
I guess this is where like a who done it comes into it. It's like who is the policeman? Because we get yeah. that like kind of reveal early on that somebody or but yeah, like and Walter Matthau very it feels quite progressive for the time. It's like do we or well, apart from his wording, it's like do we know if it's a dame or not? It could be a dame. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, but yeah, like that. I think that kind of pressure cooker thing of like oh, there is somebody inside who could mm. be there to help them. But then, like, you spend like, a lot of the film waiting for that to come to a fore, right? Well, I think you wait for them to do something stupid, mm-hmm. which is like, I think that was more of a trope of the 80s and 90s, where if you, whether it's a, whether it's a bank heist or whatever, you'd always get that guy, the good guy with a gun, who ends up getting blown away. And we don't get that here. Like, during the, while they're on the, carriage while the, the main part of the, the hijackings happened the hostage situation you don't get any of that and i thought that shows a lot of restraint yeah you know it's only when the train starts to pull away and then when they jump from the train they clearly you know whoops they they get nobody touches the 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 that middle rail until we get that horrific conclusion for for yeah you know i've i've got i've got that right here i suppose you couldn't use a quarter of a million dollars could you quarter of a million oh no thanks my accountant says that i've accepted enough for this fiscal quarter you're the english guy on the radio yes lieutenant goblin right do you want to move along excuse me um do you people still execute in this day? What? Oh, execute? No, not at the moment. Pity. Hey. Oof. <laughs> what I find, like, fascinating about that kind of... I don't know, it's not... Well, I think it is very uh archetypal of the 70s this is like that kind of anti-ending do you know what i mean of, mm. like, of like the big bad it's not like this thing of like what we would get nowadays where it's like a big showdown it's literally like he catches him and goes well fuck this i'm going yeah. out like um I'm I'm, oh. I'm I'm touching the third apart from like that as the camera's panning up i did almost expect to see like a indiana jones style like, <laughs> face melt or something <laughs> i was expecting a lot more smoking yeah. just like yeah just searing skin. Out the ears. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i but yeah like there's, he's, he's the only one and we get like moments early on with like loads of people like evacuating mm-hmm. you know running through the underground i'm just like i would be shit scared <laughs> to to t- you know like accidentally go to near that that's that's I'd be as scared as that as I am of getting shot, that's for sure. But yeah, we don't get any, we don't get any of that. Again, that that guy, the good guy with the gun, the police officer, is the hippie. Yeah. That, that that down, dirty, stinking hippie we see, who seems a bit, you know, like five years too late for that to have really been a thing. <laughs> but you know, hipster, if you will. Yeah, yeah. But he's yeah, he's the dude. He's got his little ankle piece. But yeah, he's a, you know, he manages to get some some shots off that count in the end. But then also, he doesn't bite it, does he? Walter Matthau saves him from getting um, yeah. iced by... Yeah, That's what yeah. I mean. Again, we don't like... If this was made in the 90s, well, it was, but let's talk about that a bit later. Um, 
it like you would have seen like him getting carted away in like an ambulance site like that. Whereas in the seventies, you just get a thing of like, "Hey, buddy, we're gonna get an ambulance for you." That's all we need. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He said it's gonna happen. It'll probably happen. Yeah, you know I mean? like so. Um, it's New York. It might take about three hours. Yeah, though. Exactly. yeah, yeah, exactly. They yeah. might. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any other particular scenes that like really stand out to you in this? That kind of like. I mean, yes. like going back to the humor as well, like mm-hmm. the fact that when when Garber goes up top and meets um, uh, meets Deputy Inspector Daniels for the first time, and clearly that's there's like there's racial overtones to that, as as you know, he goes, "Oh, I I I, I thought you'd be taller." I think <laughs> is the line. Clearly, not realizing that obviously this this guy who's high up in the in the New York police force is a black guy and it I think it throws him briefly and you can just see how Daniels just just shrugs it off like he has to deal with this shit every day that, yeah that's what I really like about this film and it's the way that they do it with the um Japanese characters earlier is it it almost like leads you into oh is this like is this very like 70s in attitude but mm. then like it's almost like the, the filmmakers know and then, like, do you know what I mean? Like, the character, the, the, it's, it, Daniels is in, do you know what I mean? Like, it gives us mm. a little bit, like you said, like, Daniels knows, like, that he gets this every day. So it's not like a thing of just, like, oh, Walter Matthau's character is racist. It's like, oh, like, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's mm. not the it's filmmaker It's the assumption. Going, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not the filmmaker going, hey, like, j- like yeah. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Uh, Julius Harris is one of those actors as well, who like at that period of time was in in some incredible stuff. And I'm not just talking about Bond, but like you know, he you know he did uh, he was in Shaft's Big Score. He was in um, oh god, yeah, Islands in the Stream. I only just watched that recently, which is a uh, another series film. He's um, he's in uh, Black Caesar, Hell Up in Harlem. You know, he's he was in some some he was in the um, 1976 King Kong film as well. <laughs> he did some amazing things in the 70s, man. But yeah, he's um, super fly in 72 as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's he's uh, and then like towards the end of his career, um, things like Maniac Cop Three, Badge of Silence. One <sighs> of the one of the big things I noticed uh, whilst like researching this film is. I think it's something like 18 members of the cast have been in an episode or like a movie of Co- like a Kojak. Then oh, like, wow. there's a lot of like Kojak alumni in this. Or it seems to be a lot of them like the years after this as well cause mm. and then a lot of them were in the Terry Savalas TV series he did before called like the uh like the Jack something murders or something like that. Okay. It almost feels like a precursor to Kojak. Cause it's like, instead of a, he's got a trilby on instead of a, a, a lollipop in his mouth. So it's, he's, he's still got an affectation, but it's a bit different. <laughs> and I kind of like that. And it, sure. I think it shows that the film is kind of this, I don't know, like creme de la creme of like New York actors of the time. Like, yeah, especially like, I don't know. Yeah. Like Jerry, yeah. Like Jerry Stiller, let's talk. Like, what do you think of Rico in this film? 
I love the fact that he's in this and he's not playing like, you know, there's, there's no comic relief in this. There's no real, you know, but, but for what, but for what he is, he's, he, he feels just like a guy, yeah. he, it's like a guy working there in that role. It's, it's one of those things where like, how many times do you watch a film and it's got like, uh, again, some, some handsome piece of slab of white bread playing like an architect or something. And it's just like, you're not a fucking. You've, you've never, you've never once <laughs> dealt with like, yeah, or like when somebody's like, um, oh, the, the, I've, the classic is um, Natalie Portman in um, in the Thor films as a astrophysicist, and you're just yeah, like, yeah. are you though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, whereas any one of the actors in this film, I'd be like, yeah, you totally work for the the you know the the Metro, like you absolutely, of course you do. Or if you don't now, as an actor, you certainly did in the past. Yeah, I I love the fact that when he gets to take control to speak to the hijackers, you just get that New York cynicism straight away. Like because they're like, mm. who are you? And he says who he is, and they're like, like where where's Garber? And he's like, he's like, well, everybody's got to go take a piss. It's just like straight with the yeah. sass. There's no like jet you know I mean? It's like everyone there just you just get this feeling that they all just want to fucking go home and get on with their job. Yeah, like, even yeah they, they, they all want to go home, be really horrible to their wives, <laughs> and hate their children, and then come into work the next day, which they will also hate, but for different reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Until they have a heart attack at the age of like fifty-seven, because that's what everybody <laughs> did. You know, it's a knock-on effect from when they were in their you know uh, younger guys in their twenties drinking you know, drinking, you know, um, on the job or whatever. And yeah. like that kind of, it, again, mid seventies, it's like, we're not that far removed from everybody smoking all the time and everybody drinking whiskey for breakfast. That's it. That's you know. the one thing I was like, very perplexed about this film is that like, I expected that Metro office to just be a wash with smoke. cigarette smoke. Yeah. And it's only like, like we have to like wait until, what like the final scene to see someone mm. and again that that's the only thing that must be is this like a plot contrivance or something do you know what I, mean? like, I always <laughs> think with things like if especially if you've got people in the background smoking or not smoking well smoking it's it's um what's the oh, what's the continuity error yeah, like yeah, issue yeah, yeah. right so if everybody's like smoking, it's like, oh, in that scene, they've got like half a cigarette left and this one, they've got the stub left. And, you know, like it's maybe it's issues like that. Or maybe it's it's maybe again, if they were shooting, if some of this was on location, that might have had something to do with it. Or maybe the rail authority, you know, already at the time of the 70s, I don't know, might have had a no smoking policy well, in their offices. I know that um, Robert Shaw managed to convince Hector Elizondo to give up smoking whilst making this film fantastic and like he had he, he he sounded like he would have been a little bit of like tough work like I, I, i'm not sure if it's the characters that robert shaw plays but like yeah he had a proviso that they had a ping pong table for when he wasn't shooting and apparently mm. he's shit hot he's like forest gump <laughs> levels of good at ping pong and was just like kind of absolutely owning anyone who came to challenge him which sounds like that's what i mean where's the blu-ray release where's the footage yeah of robert short playing ping pong like short shorts and then like getting ready to get back on that train yeah it's upsetting man because <laughs> i mean i know like robert shaw was already long gone and martin balsam as well but there's, there's a few like hector elizondo I'd, I'd love to see you know some interviews with 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 him and you know just just there's there's still people that even if you'd have had like a good dvd release in 2004 
to uh, to mark your 30th anniversary like you could have had some of these actors still here to to you know yeah. to talk this film up instead I think the best they've got is like three very short interviews on the American disc and then there's a commentary. So even mm. then, like, you know, in America where you'd expect, I mean, we kind of get fucked over in the UK, don't we? Where we look at, say, <laughs> the American releases and it's just like, you sons of bitches. Yeah. Uh, but no, it turns out that, no, everybody seems to disrespect the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Yeah, it's bizarre because I've got a DVD copy of the Tony Scott one that is mm. just like packed, like packed full of... That's it, man. Yeah, my DVD copy of Taking Over the Pillow 1, 2, 3, has, all it's got is the theatrical trailer. That's um, woo! Yeah, yeah, and scene <laughs> selection. Uh, Jesus. Um, let's kind of talk about how the the heist itself, like, takes place and the kind of workings of it. Obviously, they try and tackle it somewhat in the 2009 one. But do you mm. think some? Do you think a film like this, what do you think, yeah, Taking Over the Pillow 1, 2, 3, it's going to become it's like more, the new... Uh, it's more nuts and bolts here, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot more nuts and bolts. It's it's exactly what they're after, whereas, like, I will say this. I I I watched the remake um, for, for this as well, just because just I'd never seen it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of late-era Tony Scott that I just kind of have dismissed because, you know, you know, that's what people do with <laughs> films like Unstoppable. But uh, but yeah, like I, I I dig the fact that they 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 took it into a more timely place. You know, the stock market as of two thousand nine, obviously, you know, stock markets, blah 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 blah. I, I I dug that 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 side of things with it. This felt very much like oh, it's oh, it's this is all it is. I was I I had not seen this film in nearly twenty years, and so for me, I was expecting a rug pull and there to be something else to it. But it transpires that. Um, if they're all taking away a quarter of a million dollars in 1974 money, that equates to one and a quarter million dollars in today's money yeah. each, which still doesn't seem like much. But <laughs> when you're when the city is that like oh, fucked like, financially, then that's yeah, it's the best you could do, right? Well, yeah, back then, like you like you would have owned a you would have owned a house. Oh that. god, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And had money to spare. Like, yeah, this is it. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah it's, that... it, money worked differently in the before times. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. But yeah, I, I love the fact that it's a little bit more stripped down here. Um, uh, I, I dig that that it's it's pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Like yeah. it seemed, it must have seemed in the joint like a really straightforward plan to put together, especially when you've got like an inside man. Technically, yeah, because like obviously when we get that reveal that their plan is what well, I think it's re- like. Oh no, Daniels assumed it could be that the train would just keep on going. And then mm. we get like the reveal from Garber that Oh, the trains have a dead man switch, you see. You gotta you got you gotta always have a mm. hand on it. And then like they've <laughs> and then I I love the kind of when he realizes that that's not the way that he just goes, They must have figured out a way around it. <laughs> and it's like like because you, you see them tinkering with the train, but you don't like again it you don't need an explanation. You just see someone with tools and go, oh, they must know what they're doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I like that they, they don't come onto the radio for, for a good long while. And that's, that's kind of the last, and that's, that's the radio silence is what starts to make the, um, Garber go, well, there's something else going on here. Mm-hmm. And they keep trying to contact them and getting no response. It's like, okay, right. So what's, what's down? Um, you know what? I, I 
looking at both of these now, that that remake got a lot of things right. Yeah. Like in in the nineteen seventy four version, um, a, somebody you know one of the snipers, the police snipers, fires off around and catches Mister Brown in the in the arm. But there's no explanation as to it, whereas they do give an explanation in the 2009 version, which I thought was totally, yeah, I get it. There's, yeah. It's a rat crawls up a sniper's leg and bites him. <laughs> and he, yeah, he, he, you know, he accidentally shoots. Well, in in yeah. the 2009 one as well, they kind of, it feels like you've almost got um, Mr. Grey and Mr. Blue rolled into one because like, Travolta comes in with like the energy of just like mm. he is a fucking madman. Like yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think. I don't think like you would get Robert Shaw delivering this line, for instance. You can lick my bunghole, motherfucker. <laughs> I wish. I wish. <laughs> I'd have paid paid folding money to see that movie. Yeah. I. I. You know what. I've, I do, like, like in hindsight, looking back, because I watched these in, like, reverse order. It was yeah. the 2009 version first, because I thought, well, that's the one I... It, like, if it's shit, at least I can then watch the good one afterwards. Exactly. And I, I came over it going, actually, this is pretty good. I've This is really solid. Well, because time, time constraints, I, I managed to, like, watch, like, half of the 2009 one, and now right. I'm, like, kind of... It's that thing, like... Came to record. I'm itching to like see yeah, how, it's, see how it's it good. Ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Um, I think I think Denzel's pretty boring in it mm-hmm. because he's I don't know. Just I lo- I love Denzel Washington in most things, but this definitely felt like oh, I just get to sit in a chair and talk into a microphone for a lot of the film. Okay, cool. And he brings <laughs> that energy to it, which is a, a real shame because I love him when he's when he's you know when he gives a shit. Um, but you can 100% tell that John Travolta is is he's a hungry man in that. He's yeah. chewing so much scenery, and I, I dig it. I dig that role. Yeah, it's a real shame with Denzel because, especially with Tony Scott, like they seem to be like a really undersung partnership of like Mm. actor and director because they kind of like whether you like them or not, like they seem to have like they got there's a big streak of films they did together, right? Whether it's like Taking the Pelham One Two Three, Unstoppable, Deja Vu, Deja Vu uh, is. Man on Fire, that's the Tony Man Scott. Man on Fire, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know I mean? It seems to be like, they, yeah, they don't get their, like, it, I don't know. They, yes. They do They do this great little, they had this, yeah, great little run together, and you, everyone feels like a different Denzel. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, sure. So. It made no money, though, dude. <laughs> that what, that the, remake the, made no money. It's a terrible which, shame. Which, compared to this one, that kind of, like, definitely washed its face, because on a, what, yeah. $3.8 million budget, did $18.7 million. So, and I, like, I think the 18.7 is, is is just domestic as well, so it doesn't tell you what that made internationally, which, I mean, would have done would have done amazingly well, I think, internationally. And then this is, like pre your rent this would have been like if not syndicated but this would have been on, on television a lot as well this this month this film would have done very well for itself back in the day apparently cities it did really well in was new york paris and tokyo because they all have subways they yeah, were like yeah. they were like coming three of their like beacon places where like people were like i gotta go see this and like <laughs> I love that, like, this film now has actually made it that no train ever leaves uh, Pelham Station at 
123, either if it's AM or PM. That like it kind of it's created this legacy that like it's yeah. <laughs> it's like with theaters and the Scottish play, isn't it? It's like you can't just can't do it. Um, I, yeah, I. I really dig it. I literally, I, I caught this, and then last night I went, uh, I, I went onto the underground to get to, to just head to Camden for for dinner with my wife, and uh, and it was just like the minute I got on, I had this dun dun dun, yeah. dun 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 <laughs> in my head. It was like, oh man, it's 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 done that thing. The minute that 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 went into the tunnel at East Finchley, I was just like, yeah, man, I'm I'm, I'm digging this. I'm feeling it. Yeah, it's like um, let's talk about this like drop because it's. It sets up the film, right? Mm-hmm. So in regards to David Shire's score, um, Daryl, he tends to... like. There's only, like, 11 minutes, like, on the actual soundtrack, like, on, like, the listed soundtrack for this film. Like... I'm not sure if you managed to find a, uh, a like a like uh, if it's streaming anywhere. Like I looked. Oh, on... dude, yeah, it's absolutely streaming on Apple Music. Oh, fuck's sake! Yeah, so, <laughs> it's not on yeah. Spotify at all. I kind of had to like find a. All the, all they've got is the the main theme, and then I had to like listen to it on YouTube a few times. But like, oh, dude, a full 33 minute um, soundtrack is on there. Yep. Oh man. <laughs> it's uh yeah no it's it's brilliant and it is it has been soundtracking my last like two weeks of just doing anything it's been like okay i need to go to the shops dun, dun, dun. Yeah, yeah. like just just yeah whatever i've been doing it's great I, that discordant oddness there's a there's a word for it and i'm there's a, a term for it within music i'm, I'm not very good with with um with with the actual terminology um within within music but there's it's it plays around with this really chaotic like non-traditional uh kind of uh discordant sounds yes. to the point where like if you ask somebody to like listen to it and then hum it back to them it's actually really difficult because those notes are going fucking everywhere mm-hmm. um it's it's again it's great um it reminds me a lot of like lolo Schifrin's stuff for like um like the mission impossible series and stuff like that when you when you listen to it it's uh it's like just guys doing a job yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's like <laughs> missioning music and it definitely has that vibe to it but it is it's, it's playful but chaotic um oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh but it's it's also like menacing as well there's a beautiful like um, moment in the film that really captures that. I think it's just after we have like the shootout and before the conductor's shot. There's like the tensions building, and we get these like almost like broken piano chords where it's like cling, and then like yeah. low horns, just like very subtly, and then it's like really high like piano like flutters and stuff like that. And I think like that stuff, like because I, I don't know what it is about. David Shine, especially around like this time as well, because I think the score to the conversation is like mm. again fantastic Amazing. in this kind of using this uneasy discordant thing that kind of yeah captures like that seventies paranoia perfectly. It's, it's brilliant shorthand for anxiety. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's just wonderful. Yeah, it really does. Like you don't need to have much going off on screen 
But when you've got that going in the background, just, just it sets off those synapses and you're just like, oh, I, I feel really uneasy and I'm not quite sure why. In a completely different way, actually, the Clint Mansell score for uh, In the Earth mm-hmm. does a very similar thing. With with more like soundscapey yeah, yeah, yeah. things going off, and like you just you'd just be sitting there, just, and it'd just be like a feeling yeah, more yeah. than anything you're seeing. You're just like, oh, like my fight or flight response has kicked in, and there's there's definitely an element of that here, um, right from the from the where we get the taking, which is track two on the soundtrack, which is very much that. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's just. Okay, right. It's that's when you got those little kind of uh, again. I was talking about those little snare, those snare kind of like uh, patters, and and the stuff going on with the with the brass as well. And it's like, oh shit, start, something's going awry here. I'm really, you know, kind of freaked out. Um, but like, I think the beautiful thing is, is the conclusion of this film. We get like that main title, but just like extended. Yeah. And in all of its glory, and it works as a wonderful punchline to the the conclusion we get to this film as well, which is like humorous, but in like a fist, you know, punch yeah. in the air kind of way. And then it's straight back into the absolutely no fucking nonsense. Never mind the bollocks. <laughs> main title again. You're just like, whoa, and we're back. So let's play a clip of that final the final moment we get with when Garba and Rico go to visit Mr. Green. Oh, hi, Mr. Longman. We'll be back later. Yeah? Listen, I know I got a gripe with it here. I know I got a bum rap, but uh, I wouldn't do anything as stupid as what you just told me. What do you think? I'm a jerk? Just do me a big favor, will you? Get the hell out of here, for Christ's sake. Come on, Mr. Longman. We have to follow our leads. It's our job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big deal. Look, I got my rights. This is my home. I want a little peace. Well, just do me a little favor, will you? Get the hell out of here. Sorry if we bothered you, Mr. Longman. Sorry, we go. what's perfect about this version of the score like the main theme it feels like a like a reprise and a bit like a slower tempo it's still got that swagger mm. but feels like certain elements are very much like deconstructed like we kind of get those almost like yeah if it, it sounds like high tom like or like bongos yeah. like and stuff like that like added elements and i know that it's, yeah it's the jazz side of things right yeah. it's the it's being able to break something down to its core elements and then bring them back in and then create something new from it as well yeah one question I wanted to ask you is how much would you have loved to have seen a Water Mafal, Jerry Stiller, kind of like crime of the week TV series <laughs> set in the yeah. 70s? Like, well, I, like, that, I think that, that kind of like last chunk when they're kind of shaking down all the potential guys yeah. that could have been the Motorman, I'm like, I w- I w- I w- yeah, I would give yeah. big money to see that as a show. Bottle this up. I want it. I want it now. Yeah, totally. Yeah, they they work really well together as a duo. I can imagine them in like, you know, the Beastie Boys video for Sabotage. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which is fucking Jerry Stiller rolling over the bonnet of (laughs) of a (laughs) patrol vehicle. Yeah, yeah. I've been all over that, man. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I love the kind of um, 
uh, like little weird interactions we get in that end bit where we get that guy who works like now on a toll booth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's like kind of like... Still makes a pay. Yeah, he's like, you still got to pay. And he's like, I don't work for you anymore. Like probably like giving him shit. And that's the, I think that's the thing. Like, I'm so glad we've been able to be positive about a film that kind of just oozes cynicism. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it seems to me it's kind of a hot beating heart of this film is is the cynical nature of New York. Yeah, I, I I think that might be something to do with how that is ingrained in us as people in in the UK. <laughs> I think we we have a lot of that anyway. Yeah, like I think that's I think that's probably what speaks to you you and I with regards to our love of of seventies New York is like shit like that. Some of that mindset exists now, but in, the thing is with with a lot of English people, we just we 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 have this veneer, this bullshit veneer, and like you know, we think that we feel that sometimes, but we we don't really let loose in the same way that these guys are. There's I was saying, there's so many like um, fuck bombs throughout this movie, <laughs> and the amount of people saying fuck in this film, and I was like, holy sh! I was not expecting that. Totally forgot that. I just find it. Well, yeah, it's I don't know. It's I don't know if this is an underseen film, like. It's obviously like in certain camps, it's very like high regarded, but like, yeah, it is that thing. Like when you start to Google taking off the Pelham, mm -hmm. Google now instantly goes the remake. Oh, you, you want the Tony Scott one, do you? you go, yeah, yeah. Like, well, no, actually, I want to watch the 1974 version, please. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That is funny, isn't it? Yeah. And there's nary a mention of the 1998 television movie yeah, version which either, is which is such a shame. Impossible to, to find in this country. Mm -hmm. It got a DVD release in, in the US and nowhere else. Yeah, yeah. As is always the way. I've heard very mixed things about that kind of like. Yeah. I listened to the uh, Projection Booth podcast. And they kind of say oh, right. it's, it's wholly just kind of, you can, you can skip that. But then again, they were very down on the 2009 remake. So, oh, okay. Uh, not, that's not to put their, mm -hmm. put their opinion into question. Let's, let's move off this topic before I, before I get myself in smart water and ask you, um, Daryl. Oh, yeah. Go for it. Sorry. I was just going to ask you if you managed to find any Coppola connections, people who aren't like, or well, people who've in this film who have worked with a, a Coppola on something else somewhere down the line. You know what? I wasn't, I did not, I did not know. Uh, I was I was solely trying to get entrenched in David Shire, so I've spent I've spent a good two or three weeks of just like, you know, bashing out some some choice David Shire soundtracks. No worries. Uh, yeah, I will. Um, is there, yeah? Is there anything you feel like we've missed before I kind of rattle off a a, a few little um, connections I managed to dig out? I don't know, man. I think we've kind of. We've we've hit you know we've hit an awful lot here within such a short space of time. But I, this is you're right. This is one that's highly regarded within the circles that I've seen it. And you know if I'm not one to prescribe to the whole Rotten Tomatoes thing, but this is this is a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, wow. which means that every review has been a positive review for this film, which is pretty fucking incredible. Um, and and yeah, I, you can see why. I mean, like. You, I, I, it's hard to find anything in this. Like, obviously, there's, 
you know, might be some some elements that could be kind of excised for time or whatever. But this film has a character to it, mm-hmm. and tonally and this vibe, it all works so well. And this perfect storm that was 1974 um for you know cinema across the board and then just the state of where new york was mm-hmm. you know politically and socially in that era it's perfect yeah. in that in that regard it really is it's this wonderful kind of time capsule for that and it's you know i i think this is what we lose a lot of the shit going forward now where we do very nostalgia based stuff of like oh we'll set something in the 80s but nobody's smoking. Mm-hmm, yeah. We'll set something in the 1970s, but not a single person has said anything problematic. <laughs> and you're like, and you're just like, well, you know, you can do that because actually the take of the Pelham 1, 2, 3 has elements that it almost holds a, you know, holds a mirror up to, to say, mm-hmm. oh, this is a thing that exists, but this is why we should be looking at that, yeah. you know, in, in, a different, in a different perspective. You know, the talk, you know, the minute that uh, Garber mentions that the police, police person that's a fucking stupid term, Daryl. Uh, might be a woman. Um, that it was this this weird little like grain of sand that then kind of starts to work its way around in there until it becomes this neat little pearl of every every curmudgeonly old fucker on that thing just talking about oh, yeah, women cops and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And the, the misogyny just starts to kind of come yeah. out in those other characters who we're already looking at and going, boy, he's a piece of shit. He's a piece of shit. <laughs> you know, like across the board, it doesn't matter if they work for the the you know Metro or if they they're one of the you know the the four uh, the four hijackers. It's like, oh, they're all pieces of shit, but it, it's a spectrum of pieces of shit. <laughs> well, that is the seventies, right? And it's like, <laughs> and, and, well, that, that 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 is seventies cinema, and it's like to bring it back to Zodiac. I think what that manages to perfectly do in regards to like this, like with that kind of David Shire connection is it doesn't just feel like it doesn't just capture the the tone of 70s and like the the look like immaculately feels like a 70s film because mm-hmm. like the 70s is really good at like giving unsatisfying endings like thing of the mm-hmm. pen and one two three kind of bucks the rule somewhat because that that ending is very much like a chef's kiss like perfect like gotcha mm-hmm. but even then it's it doesn't feel wholly resolved do you know what i mean like we're like yeah Z- yeah zodiac the big the big criticism of that film is well you don't really know what happens at the end it's like well like, based on a true thing but like it <laughs> that's very, life <laughs> yeah and it feels very much in keeping with like a lot of like 70s cinema where it is like at the mm. end like the conversation being a prime example where like the kind of end of that is just a bit like oh it's, it's Pretty fucking bleak, German. Yeah, I mean that and The Godfather too. I mean, yeah. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> Nineteen seventy-four, nice time for it, nice time for some bleak, bleak cinema. Um, yeah, I'll rattle off a few of these Coppola connections. So, Martin Balsam was also in All the President's Men, which was scored by David Shire. As I mentioned earlier, Hector Elizondo is in The Princess Bride with Robert Schwartzman. Uh, Beatrix Wind is in It Could Happen to You with Nicolas Cage. Uh, Rudy Bond, who plays the co- uh, police commissioner, is in Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather as Cuneo. Uh, Robert Will is in Saturday Night Fever and Moonstruck. Th- yeah, th- <laughs> this one, I, I love these ones. Conrad Yama, who is one of the Japanese businessmen, plays a fruit vendor in The Godfather. So, like, Jesus. a very small, a very, very small credit. Yeah. And then... 
again, I'll, yeah, I'll just rattle out this one because it, it's, um, I like it when somebody is listed for a film, but not in the job that they did in this film, if you know what I mean. So, um, Carmine uh, Foresta uh, is a policeman in Godfather 2, but he's also the New York location manager for 8mm, the Joel Schumacher film <laughs> starring Nicolas Cage. <laughs> So yeah, Holy yeah. Shit. there's yeah there's there, there, there there's a fair few more, but kind of gets a bit boring. I'm yeah, I'm sure you you could attest to this when you start I, to do your uh, yeah links within the. I you see the thing I love about David Shire is uh, like whenever we think of Saturday Night Fever, we think of the soundtrack, mm-hmm. and like, I I always love that in especially in what we now consider either uh, like a jukebox soundtrack you know film where like all we're thinking is the soundtrack. Some poor fucker has still scored that, yeah. that film. Uh, and and yeah, that, that's the real issue with Saturday Night Fever. It's a great David Shire score there, but that's not what you're thinking about when you think about Saturday Night Fever. You're thinking about the Bee Gees. You're thinking about, you know, everything else on there except for the really solid score. Yeah, but I, I always think, like, it definitely, that, that must have been an amazing paycheck for him. Oh, God, I think yeah. still, like, Manhattan Skyline mm-hmm. is still on that, like, all-time best-selling soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. So he, he, he he's did still, all right. Yeah, he's still, yeah. He's still getting his bread. He's all right. Like, <laughs> let's, let's, let's not let's not be too, feel too sorry for David Shire. Um, so as the Coppola's now seem to be, um, well, Francis more than anything more more concerned with wine. What would be your perfect wine pairing for this film, Daryl? Oh my god! Oh, you see. I'm a, I, I'm a man who uh, doesn't drink much wine these days. Uh, I, you know what? I don't know how to answer that. Um, <laughs> I really don't. If you ask me about like it's, it's, it's like real fucking like a beardy uh, London thing, like if you ask me about stouts, now yep. I could tell you that <laughs> like a, a nice smoky, uh, full-bodied stout would be perfect for this. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, in terms of wines, man, I'm I'm sorry. Um, no, <laughs> I'm no, no, failing. it's fine. Let, yeah, let's go with your your stout pick for for uh, taking the Pelham one two three then. Yeah, I'd I'd yeah, I'd definitely go for a for a, a smokier, like incredibly dark stout. Something a little heavy, a little, yeah. little full bodied, something that uh probably a bit pokey, you know, at the higher percentage for, for yeah. a stout. So like maybe you're, you're like thirteen percenter. Something that you you're gonna like sip, not Amazing. something you're gonna knock back. So how much how how much are we paying for this? Is this bottom oh, shelf, mid shelf, probably or top shelf? I don't know. For for a stout, this is probably mid 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 shelf. So probably uh, you're looking at about seven pounds for a can. Okay, I know, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, but that's that's that, that that's what this film deserves. It's kind of yeah, yeah, totally. This is Friday night. Treat yourself, right? <laughs> Get yourself a, a nice posh beer to start off with, right? And then you've got the you know the rest for, for later. And then yeah, just yeah. You could, you this isn't quite a beer and a pizza movie, is it? It's it's not like a no. fun for your mates to all come round and watch. And it's not like a sitting on a Sunday in your rocking chair movie with a hangover either. It's definitely. I think this is like a treat yourself on a Friday night. If it's just just you, sit at home, crack open a nice. Well, I think whatever. If, if you're getting a pizza, you're gonna either have to like proper like New York style it and do a Tony oh, God, Monero yeah. two slice like a two slice one on top of the other. Or it's going to have to be like a wood fight. Do you know what I mean? It's going to have to be yeah, like yeah. a wanky pizza. It's not. It's not going to be like a Domino's. <laughs> Domino's. No. no, this isn't that. Isn't that a fair? Um, 
So <laughs> I like to close these out by asking some ridiculous questions that I'm so glad I'm asking as opposed to answering. The first one of which is, which of the Coppola family members would you keep? You get to keep one, but in doing so, you get rid of the filmographies of the entire family. Holy fuck. Ah, uh, I'm going to have to keep Francis. Yeah. As boring as basic bitch as that answer is, <laughs> like it's, it would be fucking foolish of me. Is, yeah. Is this on selfish grounds? Because I... I, I, I I'm very Oh, interested. dude, 100%. Yeah, perfect. I love 100%, that. Right, shadow of a doubt, yeah. Fuck everyone else, you know. Seriously, I and I know, like, Jeanette would, my, my, my wife and Codpast, pod, pod podcast co-host. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we, have a, we have a fisherman podcast. Um, but no, it's, she, she, she struggles with the Godfather. Um, and, but, I, but I don't, Petros, and what, that's why. That's what why I think is very telling is when Jeanette was on this podcast, her answer to that question was also Francis Ford Coppola on the basis of what he did for cinema. So hers was very selfless in like he's like the, the ripples he has made. And then you've kind of bolstered on and gone, fuck everyone else. It's Francis Ford Coppola. I love the Godfather. And I love it, Daryl. But like as well, like without him and American Zoetrope and everything that, that that was going on there, you wouldn't. I mean, George Lucas would never have had the back slaps he needed to mm -hmm. to then yeah. do what he did, uh -huh. and so on and so forth. And that whole, you know, kind of run of everybody we got in the in the seventies into the eighties. Uh, yeah, like, but uh, yeah, you, you take Francis out of that, yeah. then yeah, he, he did some fucked. amazing things. Even if it's like um, kind of giving like. Uh, Kurosawa like another go at it totally I mean? Ran's great yeah, yeah, like yeah. Kagamusha's great yeah yeah like they kind of, he kind of he saw these things and like wanted like the there's, Zoe Trope's story I think is like is a podcast all to itself where it's like mm -hmm. a book because or, or some kind of doctor that, that that especially the studio itself like the mm. kind of like uh, big yeah like ridiculous whole affair that he did with one from the heart and stuff like that it's just the guy <laughs> the guy managed to i don't know want to create this world and a repertory company of actors and stuff like that to to churn out films and i think like the destruction of zoetrope studios and the ripple effects that had on his career and him personally mm. You can argue he never recovered from, like, do you no. know what I mean? Like, the, the, the 80s into the 90s, like, did some decent stuff, but he ne he's never reached the, the heights of what he did in the 70s at all. No, not at all. And I don't see you, Christopher Nolans, or that, you know, um, doing their best to um, try and revitalize or make, you know, uh, help fund and produce the careers of, a, of an aging filmmaker now. Like, the, the, we've, we've lost that that level of, of support even and understanding that, that we had, you know, with your, with your Coppola's and Scorsese and, and all of those of that, of their ilk. Yeah. It's perfect. Well, um, yeah, but let's, I'm going to slightly change this question because I always feel like, I don't know, it's yeah. Based on this film alone, are they the greatest film family of all time? On this film alone. 
Okay, taking taking from the fact that this is the husband of Talia Shire <laughs> for that for that period of time, uh, and, and like listening to that score and its placement and what it does within the film, um, I'd say yeah. It, if if certainly not the greatest, they're certainly up there. And uh, I think like based on the score from somebody who was a family <laughs> member for a short period of time. Yeah, fuck it. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I, I, I always feel like asking that question in its original form is just a bit like, because there's so many of them, it, it feels like it's Fair weighed. Right yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh yeah, do you want to fight? It's almost like if it was a fight, do you want to fight a family that's got two members in it or do you want to fight uh, a family that's got 27 like thousand members that the coppola seem to have it's like it seems it seems wholly unfair well i love the fact we didn't even go into the fact that um you know the film's director joseph Sargent, went on to make um jaws colon the revenge amazing <laughs> i know right what a, what a slap in the face to <laughs> robert shaw do you know what i mean like, yeah. like oh, i did this yeah. amazing film of you now i'm gonna go like shit on the legacy of that great that great film you did. Um, well, it leads me to my final question and um, possibly the most important question on this podcast, which is what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? Hmm. <sighs> hmm. That's, uh, you know... It could it could be anything. It could it could literally just a whispered rosebud in her ear, <laughs> and like what the fuck, yeah. Or um, this is my address in LA. <laughs> I, I come yeah. This this is my address. I keep a key under the under the rock behind <laughs> the back door. See you there in three weeks today. I don't know something. I've got a massive paycheck coming in from Garfield. <laughs> i'm gonna take you around the world <laughs> yeah amazing daryl well thank you so much for coming and making thanks for having me on man connections man uh, where can people find you and everything you're doing whether it's the podcast or talking about films right. in general so yeah um, i'm the one lurking behind sdd film podcast on twitter uh that's for sudden double deep um and then Obviously, I'm also on Is Paul Dano Okay, which you can find us wherever you're listening to, to this now, I imagine. <laughs> um, um, and yeah, we, our second season's, uh, well, I think we're, we've probably got close to ending by about now. Yeah. Um, so go back and listen to those 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 first, first two seasons of, of shows. And season three will be kicking off pretty soon with some... some pretty high profile film reviewer swanky guests which is nice covering there will be blood yeah amazing again thank you so much man for coming on and chatting about this film thank with you me. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much again to Daryl Bear for coming and joining me for this rip-roaring, rollicking time around the New York subway system. How do you feel about the new format of asking based on this film, specifically if they're the greatest film family of all time? I feel like it makes it a bit more exciting. Feel free to let me know and you can do that on 
all the social media platforms. So that is Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and even Letterboxd at Caged In Pod. Or if you want to drop me something that's a bit more detailed, drop me an email at cagedinpod at gmail.com. As I mentioned in the intro, and I'll mention it here as well, you can support the Patreon, you can support the podcast on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash cagedinpod, as well as Kofi. And I'll drop the uh, coffee, Kofi, I never know how it's pronounced. I'll drop the link in the uh, show notes so you can, yeah, you can chuck some money. I understand if you don't want to make the commitment to an ongoing thing um as for next week on the show i will be joined by tristan burrell of the double impact podcast so we had sudden double deep this week and now next week we've got double impact to talk about the john schwartzman lens 2014 foray into the dracula world with dracula and told it's a fun episode it's uh maybe an underwhelming film you'll have to tune in and find out next week but yeah i had a lot of fun with this episode and i'm sure you will as well if you enjoyed this episode please be sure to rate review and subscribe on apple podcast acast or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now it all really helps so as always I've been Petros Patsilivus, your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. Remember to keep it caged in and I'll catch you next time. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.